Um, Welcome everyone to the Changemakers podcast. I am Catalina and I am curious about change. I am interviewing people around the world who are driving positive, impactful change within themselves, their communities, their field of work and the world. When we talk about change nowadays, we always think of technology as the main driver for it. So today, I invited three software engineers to join me in a discussion on this topic. We will talk about the role, responsibility and ethics of a developer, lifelong learning in a fast-paced tech environment, community of open source sharing, the cost of scalability and the state of artificial intelligence. introducing yourselves quickly and what are you currently busy doing and maybe where did your interest for engineering started? Hmm. Well, uh, I can start out. My name is Rasmus. I'm a senior developer. I work in Berlin right now for a company that does lead qualification and nurturing. Uh, primarily, I work as a back-end developer, but I mean... In the world of development these days, I think you need to diversify a lot. So front-end is also something I do. But uh, I think for me personally, my passion is in the, the back-end architecture and database and those really nerdy topics that most people don't know about. Yeah, and uh, I'm Simon. I have been a developer for some years. I'm um, currently working at a company that develops a... A SaaS product for basically ensuring your website or your company's uh, digital presence through giving you insights about your website through analytics and, uh, and other tools. Um, and essentially, uh, my responsibilities are across the table in this in the terms of the front end and back end and database related stuff. Um, and yeah, I've I've always liked. Uh, developing because you can just use your creativity to solve problems but not only uh, in a certain way that's already been predefined but you kind of like make your own way my name is uh, Stefan I'm um, based in Copenhagen I um, I don't think if if you go I, I don't have an education in developing but uh, I've always been driven by the idea of using technology to change something. Uh, so my most recent um, job or career change has been that I've founded a company where we're trying to use technology to create happiness in work by freeing up some time in the long tedious process and allowing more time for individualism and personality and no, no, just, just in general putting the person in central. Um, my, my passion is primarily front-end, the, the whole user experience and the design and everything about that. But since it's a startup, uh, I do everything. Mm-hmm. So at the moment, <laughs> I'm, the, I'm the only developer. We've been more, but now I'm, I'm the only one. Mm-hmm. Cool. You said that um, within this role, you... Um, are able to kind of uh, 
put in action all your creativity. Um, can you elaborate more on this creativity and being a software engineer? Because I think for non-engineers, creativity is always associated more with artsy kind of stuff. Um, and engineering is more like analytical, hardcore roles kind of thing. Um, yeah. What role does so, creativity play in your um, So I think the thing you have to keep in mind is that when, when you're developing something, uh, usually what, what's at hand is that you have some kind of problem that you're trying to solve. Um, and usually it's, very, it's, a, it's a little part of a bigger problem uh, that you're focused on at that given time. Um, and then additionally, you often have some kind of constraints uh, around solving the problem. Um, that could often be what kind of technology you're using or the business that you're working with, or maybe you have some time constraints, so you can't spend like half a year making a, a button. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there, there can be all sorts of different uh, factors that have to play into what, like how you're going to try to approach the problem. Mm. Uh, but then, even still, when you consider all those constraints, um, there's so many different ways you could then actually go about uh, implementing the solution that you're trying to make. Mm-hmm. Um, and often you'll have to make decisions where, um, where you have to use uh, your experience from before or you have to ask someone you know, uh, have experience with it or, or research online because uh, if you make a mistake, with your implementation, it could have like a lot of impact in the future mm. uh, because you might have to go back and fix it or it makes something else impossible later on. I think um, the creativity and programming, at least for me, plays a lot back to like when I was a kid, I loved to play with Legos, you know, like you just have a like this huge box of Legos and you have no idea like what you're going to build, but you have a lot of tools to build with and then you like just kind of put something together and then you end up with, you know, a little house, you have like a little car or something that can drive around and you can put a little man in it and stuff like that. You know, it's about really uh, what do you make do of with the, the, the tools you have available and what can you build out of this and get something good out of it at the end. Yeah. Uh, if I can add something to, to all of that, it would be that be, being a developer, I would say, broadens the creativity a lot because this, as uh, Simon says, you have to be creative about how you solve a problem. Uh, and as um, Rasmus says, you know, you can make things out of, you know, mm-hmm. nothing. So there's mm-hmm. there's both parts. Like you, you can solve problems very creative, and you can actually define problems, mm-hmm. and you can you can like take the whole prospect to like, I want to change something, finding out how you change it, what effect it will have, how you do it, and then start being creative about implementing. It. Mm-hmm. So it's not like. It's not isolated in the sense that um, you have a clear canvas or there are some constraints you have to fit in or, or, or make a work around. You actually, you are most you you will be in charge of the constraints, mm-hmm. or you will be a part of a team who has set some constraints, mm-hmm. and you can often have an influence on very uh, pretty much all of it, which is super exciting. Nice. Um, so the technology in general is kind of driving this whole discussion about change and we always talk, at least in the business world, that everything is changing so fast and we need to adapt and technology is kind of like, you know, in the front row driving everything uh, behind it. 
Um, what do you think in this context is the role of a developer as well? I think the role of a developer changes a lot. Or like, I mean, overall you do the same thing, right? You make programs, but there's so much that comes into the world of development, new the programming languages, new frameworks, new technologies that you need to know about, or you need to have some type of, you know, there's always new things popping up in programming or someone comes up with, you know, the old way we do things are not working anymore, so we should do it this way. And then you have to get into it. It's not... Uh, a lot of these things that pop up in the world of programming are quite um, information dense. Like there's a you can maybe understand it on a brief surface level, but to really dive into them, you have to spend a lot of time uh, working with them, or reading about them, or even trying it for yourself. And that's also changing really fast in programming. I think uh, the whole role of a developer. You know, are you back end developer? Are you front end developer? Are you full stack? Do you, do you even do web development? Do you do Embedded development, there's so many things and new things pop up all the time. Yeah, I'd say it's important as a developer to, to be able to tell people what they, what is available, what you can do, what you can achieve. And I think that's why it's going so fast now because so many things are actually possible, but people are also getting pretty good at like getting a sense that, okay, Technology can actually do way more than we actually expected, so they challenge it in different ways, uh, which is because that people like talk up about the opportunities and they share the the things that they make. Mm. And then there's of course the of course the the role of actually making things, which is also very very important. This whole thing. I think it's important for a developer just to be open and uh, creative because if you're open and creative, it does not matter what happens in the world of development. You can always be open to it and learn it. You know, yeah. if you're really rigid in your role, then you can maybe become a little bit stuck. Yeah, the open source uh, philosophy has really opened up a lot of aspects of making things. Mm -hmm. So you don't have to. Go with your cards close to your body. You know, you share everything and hope that something better comes out of it. Yeah, it's a great community, I think, of people also making content to help other uh, developers uh, learn about all the new things. People are very friendly in general. There's also the outliers, of course, but I also I feel like it's also something that kind of uh, has appeared because of necessity, um, because like you say. Uh, technology is, is growing extremely fast and uh, being a developer in such an environment means that it's not sufficient that you're an expert in some technology and just you're the best at that because that, that will work very great in the short term. The problem is in like uh, five years that technology could be completely obsolete and, uh, and nobody is interested in using that anymore. So it's, it's not so much about which technologies you, you know how to use and work with. It's more uh, having the ability to continuously grow your tool set uh, on an ongoing basis from, from you start your career until you finish it because it's never going to pause. It's never going to be like, okay, now I'm the expert in this and now I'm settled. Now I just you know, do that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're just putting yourself into a corner if you do that and you... Yeah. Are not kind of riding with the wave, to say that. Yeah, it seems like the the role of a developer is kind of 
driving this whole discussion also about lifelong learning because especially in the role of a developer if you don't continue learning and as you said being open and yeah learn new languages and new mm. programs um, then you're just you're going to be out of a job definitely i mean i think that's the most important thing for a developer i think uh, the developers i've met that i think are good are not necessarily someone who is amazing at like Simon was saying one specific programming language or whatever it's the developers that are just good at knowing how programming is because they can pick up if we they need to do something they'll just learn it while they're doing it mm -hmm. instead of just putting themselves in a box and saying you know I'm really good at this one thing but I don't know about the thing over here so I'm not even going to touch it you know or try it out do developers actually need an education uh, I would say that uh, it helps a lot if you get uh, some of the fundamentals uh, through education, or at least it can help for some, because there are certain aspects, in spite of technology progressing all the time, that for the most part uh, will always hold true. For instance, I feel like any developer who doesn't know roughly how a computer works internally, with how the different components talk to each other, and what's like the driving uh, the driving force underneath all these different layers of technology um, they're basically hindering themselves every time they try and learn something new because uh, if, you, if, you, if you're learning a new language but you still understand what's the underlying components uh, that are causing that behavior then it's much easier mm -hmm. so it's kind of like uh, it's like knowing the foundation that won't change so that you can focus on only mm -hmm. the things that do change I've always thought that education has this funny, funny shape and and how it transforms people's life. Um, the people that I advised when I when I when I was supposed to go into an education, they all said that they that um, they all took a bachelor, a master thesis in in something, but ended up working in something entirely different. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was my that was my cue to. To say, well, then I shouldn't take an education. <laughs> uh, but what really, what really enlightened me, and what I can see now from working with very talented, educated people, is that what education really gives a person is you you they teach you how to learn. That's basically what you you do. You 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 learn how to make a thesis. You know how to check it. You know how to like allocate time to study, to like uh, set a scope for what to know and what not to know, what's important, what's not important. And I think that is super helpful, especially when you go into technology, where, like you say, you will always be learning. Um, but do you really learn how to do that? You like set a scope of what you need to learn? You get a sense, I, I don't know, <laughs> but uh, I can say that I had two guys working for me who came out of um, a master degree in AI. And as soon as they started working, I could feel that their theory was on point. They knew a lot about why things were doing what they were doing, uh, but they didn't really have the experience to foresee things that would happen because they hadn't really made all the mistakes that I've made in the time that I haven't had any education, just had to plow through the, the hard work. But for them to catch up on me is way quicker than the time I've spent to get where I am. 
So their learning curve starts at a higher point and has a higher curve than mine, which is like flat, which is stagnating these, these days. That it, because I feel like I could use a lot of tools on how to learn better and how to make it stick and how to to like develop my own skills because I've just been doing trial and error and that's good for a certain point. Uh, but I will definitely be like, how do you say, they will catch up on me and they will go way beyond me when it comes to developing skills. So I would say for an education in technology, it is, as Simon said, very, very useful. Uh, but it all depends on where you want to be and how you want to get there. I'm super glad that I took my way. I would rather be a, an awesome manager and really help these people grow that have the momentum, have the education. Uh, then I would then I would be the one doing the actual work in five years. But do you, yeah, I I'm just also maybe to bring up a counterpoint a little bit that I actually think maybe education in some ways also can be detrimental to a developer um, because. I'm not saying it's all detrimental because I agree that there's a lot of good points that come out of uh, education because you learn all these things that if you're by yourself, you won't learn them or you don't maybe by yourself can find the correct path on how to learn things. So you don't pick up on a lot of important skills that you just happen not, you don't happen to find them when you're learning and stuff like this. Um, so you definitely learn a lot of good things. But I also think that specifically with programming, because it's moving so fast, Personally, I can say from my education is that a lot of what you learn in school can be really outdated to how it actually is when you go out into the world and you need to work. If you can see school as a way to learn how to learn, then I think it's amazing. But I also think there's a lot of people who say, um, I'm just, I want to go to university because it means I don't have to think. I just have to show up to a class and be taught mm. some things that yeah. someone else has taken control of what it is I need to learn so I can just sit and absorb and I think that can be a dangerous mindset because if you go to university for something like this and you have a teacher who has been maybe he was on the, uh, the the business market or the job market a long time ago or and he's been a teacher for a long time or he has just he has stagnated as a person and has yeah. not kept up with technology then it means that what you're taking for granted as just the way things are when you're being taught by a teacher is actually not how it is out there and you can maybe get a either a wrong impression of the field or you can, uh, you know, connect the wrong dots and, you know, make some wrong yeah. assumptions. So it's kind of, it depends a little bit as you how you are as a person because maybe those two AI people you were talking about, they're good because of their personality and approach to it, not necessarily because of how their education has been, even though it could, of course, help in certain areas. I think there'll be a factor in any circumstance mm -hmm. if you take them in an education aspect or, or not. Mm -hmm. I think that the personality is also super, super important. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I just know that from my own education, that was how I felt a lot of the time. Um, was that uh, when I started with Simon doing education and doing student talks with Asia Company that uh, was founded during our. Uh, time in university and we did a lot of our free time we spent a lot of our free time coding on it mm -hmm. that's when I really felt like I learned a lot because maybe in university I was taught a lot of theory and mm -hmm. some of it was definitely right and I was really happy I learned it and some of it was wrong and then I found that out through trial and error doing these things so I think that maybe the sweet spot isn't doing both you know doing the education but also 
doing things by yourself that's not just guided by someone. Because then when you go out of education, you're going to be by yourself all of a sudden. And if you don't have that ability yeah. to make your own way, then... I agree. Mm, I agree. You know, what are you going to do? I would, I would also strongly recommend that instead of going the whole way in, the, in your first run, that you split it up. So you take a bachelor and you get out and you get some experience. Mm. So you know what you actually have to look for in, in the studies so that you don't take things for granted. Yeah. I know the guys that I was working that, that I was working with, they they praise the school for being able to teach them how to, to learn a language and not a specific language. So mm-hmm. the school was very awesome that you had to like learn a, di- a different language at every course so that you d- you didn't you, you weren't a specialist when you came out but you you knew how to learn things, which was very useful for them. But as a, but as I mentioned, when they came out they had no experience in, in the errors they can expect that the environment is not as perfect as it, as it is in paper, or the things that might break that you wouldn't expect, the low late, uh, high latency or whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, and those were the, those were the itch- issues they were dealing with the most. And that was where I could add a lot of value for them, was you know mm-hmm. helping them foresee these things. Cool, nice. It seems that uh, in the in software engineering, especially, there is like a huge community, as you said, this open source philosophy that everyone just shares stuff and um, everyone in a way is helping each other to, to solve um, programming problems. Mm, how come there is a community among developers and not in other areas where this kind of collaboration philosophy is mostly needed? Uh, it's probably hard for us to say why exactly it exists, <laughs> but we, I guess we can maybe discuss some points that could uh, indicate some mm-hmm. of the reasons why it's there. Uh, but I, I think, per, at least personally, what the reason I feel connected sometimes to developers uh, out of the box, let's say, when I meet them, uh, is because you have this common ground that you can understand each other upon. Because you, you, if if you really do spend most of your time developing, or at least all your professional uh, uh, time, uh, then you you kind of go through the same pain points, and you have the same nice feelings when you solve a problem you've been working on for a week or, or that moment when you when you've been like because you're you're really tired and and it's just not working and then you realize after a lot of hours of just no progress that oh shit it's because i was missing a, a uppercase s here and not a lowercase s or something like that and and that combined with uh, i think just the whole nerdiness of being always online and chatting with each other asking each other for help it, it builds some kind of uh, camaraderie that's very unique. Like, for instance, uh, we're sitting here in Berlin right now because I convinced these two guys <laughs> to help me out finishing uh, some software because they're much better at Ruby on Rails than I am. Uh, I think that a lot of the open source community that is specific to, uh, to programming in some way, I guess, also originates from the fact that, you know, software is really easy to share with people. It's just... Uh, it, to a certain extent, it's also really easy to understand. You know, it's a, if you do a lot of marketing, you know, it's not so easy to talk with someone who does marketing for another company and collaborate on something because you probably have really different approaches or you're doing it for completely different companies or whatever. But where programming is a little bit more, you know, everyone speaks the same language. You know, uh, it's easy, really easy to share with each other and you get more stuff done if people band together and help each other out. Yeah. 
Maybe it's because we developers are actually pretty lazy. <laughs> Probably. So when when we when we are looking to solve something, we go to find inspiration or, or to see how it's done or uh, if it, anyone had the same issues or same problem, and then that just led to someone sharing I don't know a solution for something, and then some guy went, "You should do this instead," and then they changed it, and then maybe it started from 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 just people looking for solutions and then adding value while they were, you know, finding solutions like uh, WordPress, which is one of the biggest CMSs, open source uh, CMSs uh, out there is from a nerd who wanted to make a blog. And then there was another nerd who wanted to make a blog, but he didn't want to do the whole thing himself. So he was like, could, could I have a piece of that code? And he was like, yeah, you can have it. And then they started improving on it, and they both benefit from the other the, the work that they made. It became faster and more extensive and whatever. And then the community grew about that. Like there was the baseline, and how can we all make this work for everyone? It's also like the, one of the fundamental things about software is that if I made some software that has a lot of value to me, uh, I don't lose any of that value if someone else also gains the benefits from using it. It's so, quite opposite. Yeah. You remember you asked us today, have you guys published something on GitHub that like a big amount, a larger amount of people have actually benefited from as if it was like an achievement? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it was like, no, we actually haven't. Mm-hmm. And you were like, no. I just did this. And you actually feel good for helping people yeah. getting it out there. I think uh, programmers in general can, are also pretty proud people. Yeah, like, I was just about to say I we, think brag, we want to brag about. Exactly. <laughs> to take an example, for example, that now that you mentioned WordPress, there's also the guy who made the, the Linux operating system, which is now the most used operating system of all. He made it for himself, and he just put it out there to tell people, look what I made, it's really cool. And people were like, you know what, that's really cool, but you should also change this one thing. And then people started changing a little bit, and suddenly the community grew grows around it and then now we have something that has thousands of people working on it collaboratively working together having long conversations through email whatever smaller groups and grew way beyond what was imagined of it at the start just because he was proud of what he had made and he wanted to put it out there for people to see it grew way bigger than him than Mm -hmm. the the guy who made it and also if an enterprise that had it internally but it wouldn't be possible though without uh, like the internet yeah. and, and being able to share something with the, the platform that exists. Right. Like the the two most important websites that come to my mind when I think about sharing as a developer uh, is GitHub and Stack Overflow because GitHub is where you'll find everyone's code and Stack Overflow is where you find everyone's answers and questions to that code. <laughs> Also, I guess, coming a bit back to, to the, the whole discussion about uh, being a developer and, and like learning and what you need to know and how do you deal with all the changes constantly happening, it's, it's, I'd say being a developer is almost more about knowing how to deal with not knowing something. So like if, if I need to solve a problem, I need to uh, have the skill of defining what it is I don't know yet but if I Google that thing, I can find out very quickly. And then just continuously applying that until you reach some kind of uh, progress towards whatever solution you imagined in the beginning. 
And that's so much more valuable than uh, any kind of knowledge in specific languages or, I don't know, frameworks, whatever. Because mm. uh, I, I know people from my studies who didn't uh, practice that skill and who didn't like, if they were stuck, they would just give up instead of trying to Google it and just be like, okay, it's okay if I don't get this. And you don't get very far with that mindset. Yeah, I agree. I think one, one point that's important, that's important to add to the whole open source and the whole community aspect is actually the enterprises and the businesses that use these software, the software. There's like a hidden rule that if, if a company bases their business on something that's free, then they give back in developer time, which is, I think, which is why Linux has got so much attention because big companies base their hardware, their backend systems on this software. So they, they allow that or that the developers will initially use a lot of time in this scope and are therefore obligated to like fix it if there's a bug. So if company A is basing their whole tech stack on Linux and there's this one error that's critical for them to fix, they'll have to fix it at Linux, you know, at the at the core, at the at the kernel to make it actually get through to all the systems at once, which is very, very, very important to push, to keep the momentum going because it's, it's, it's limited how much spare time developers have to sit and like really nerd about and really create these things and make them like from good to perfect. But if they use it in the work, which most people do, uh, it's also important that the companies give back in the sense that if they base the, the, the business on the software, that they actually allow the developers to to get get into it and like help support the the software with time. You mentioned before that um, you focus a lot on solving problems that you spend in the context of learning. That sometimes you know you would spend days on trying to solve a problem and you wouldn't know what's wrong with that. And, and my question was, the problem to my head was, um, how much do you actually balance between? having this focus work on a very specific problem within that code and actually zooming out and looking at the bigger picture and how the company applies that code and software in the first place. I mean, that's a, that's a tough one. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I think it's, it's very, very dependent on the specific context, but also just uh, arbitrary factors. Like, for instance, the moments when you're very focused on a problem it's mostly when you're stuck on a, on a very specific problem. And one thing, though, about that is that usually that would be when you're trying to do something outside your comfort zone, which is not in your routine skill set. Um, so I guess that's maybe one pinpointer for when that happens. But then at other times, uh, like, let's say I'm working on a feature and maybe it's, it's I'm, I'm kind of feeling like, okay, that'll take me three days to make then maybe the first two days is pretty productive and I get a whole lot of code written because um, a lot of it is going through the motions of what I'm already used to doing and what I basically already have very clearly in my head. Um, and then maybe towards the end, it slows down because I have to connect the dots and, and, and cover the, the, the unknowns that are maybe a little more foreign to me. I think it, I think it's a good question. Um, and I can maybe draw a little bit from personal experience, um, but I think it depends a little bit on the how the company you work for uh, works and the size of the company also. If we think about, um, like I work for a startup now, so I have a lot of time and a lot of uh, 
to think about what it is that we're actually doing, where are we moving. I have some influence also in where are we going. I can say uh, I don't think this feature should maybe work like this. Maybe we should do it like this. Or uh, what about introducing this feature? Or maybe it's not in our best interest to introduce this feature. Um, but I think when you grow a company to a really big enterprise scale, for example, let's say you take a company like Google that maybe starts out wanting to do a lot of really good things, but then grows really big um, and then starts doing a lot of what some people might call sketchy stuff, or at least uh, not always driving good in the world, not necessarily just Google, but a lot of big tech companies in general, Facebook, for example. Um, I think it also is because a lot of that is taken away from the developers because you are maybe working in some task force within the company that has a certain role or like you need to develop a certain software uh, or some parts of some software and that might be really good that you're developing but how that software is then used later is not something you necessarily have a direct influence on and that can maybe be used in ways that we're not uh, why not you know, because in, you don't ask these questions from the start or because it's just But it can be difficult to see because there's so many other people working in the same company developing a lot of uh, other functionality or uh, applications or uh, yeah. stuff like that. You know, mm -hmm. I, as in, a, in, a, in a startup, you have a lot of, you can see the whole company, you know, you understand what are we doing and in which sectors we're also, you lose that overview. Also, right? just like you say, you work in a startup and you're how many developers? In the we're Six, seven developers right. now, I think. So, so that means you probably uh, haven't written directly, but at least have touched on like quite a big amount of the code base. So you True. know, like, you know, uh, to some degree, pretty well what's going on in most places. But uh, for instance, in my company, we are, uh, I mean, the development uh, department is 100 people, and I think a little more than half of those people are developers. Um, and That just means that the code base is, is so huge that for any individual to actually be have knowledge of all of it, uh, it kind of requires that one, uh, they have a very unique position in the company where they have like a very cross-cutting role. Uh, and, and then the other uh, factor, which is they've probably been there since the beginning. Mm. Um, but, but me, for instance, I, I probably only very well know the like one or two percent of the code base in our company and the rest is completely foreign to me. So it can be, it can be actually sometimes be almost impossible to get the big picture other than what you hear from uh, your managers or the, the company leaders. Yeah. But to give an example, for example, I was recently working in my company and making some software that can uniquely identify users within our product. And I can do it knowing that we're not going to use it to uniquely identify people and take a lot of data Uh, something like that. But if you develop this software for a bigger company where you don't necessarily know how it will be used by the company later or other sections of the company that you don't have any idea of how they work internally, then you don't know if the software that you're using with good intentions can maybe be used uh, in other places uh, for maybe, uh, I'm not going to say bad, uh, bad uh, things, but you know, can maybe be used as sketchy, <laughs> sketchy things or at least not in the intended way. Uh, and then that can really easily lead to your code being the, the, the source behind. An important factor for you know the approach to, to solve an issue is also how it's defined and why it's defined. Is, are we testing a thesis, thesis that we have about users having a certain 
pattern or is it a bug that we have to fix or do we have to approve this uh, feature that we launched last month? So there's like different approaches to, to different things that need, need to be fixed. If you are making something new or improving something, you generally spend, I would say, a lot of time thinking about how you would go about and implement it in the big scale. So how would it work with the other uh, components? How would this be to, how would my co colleagues be able to extend this in the future, mm. etc. Uh, but if you are making a small, minimal, viable, viable product, which is like a test, we want to test this, usually I just I don't give a fuck what it looks like. It's just <laughs> get it out there as quick as possible. And it might not work, but it looks like it works. Yeah. And then, you know, we can see if people even press the button in the end, and then that's a success. Um, so, so there's like different cases where, where things are also more critical than other things. So if it's a, it's a, if it's a feature that, you know, all your users use, you will be thinking more thoroughly about it. Mm. And if it's a feature that, you know, only you will be using internally for the mm. next six months, because you have plans on doing this better by then. We mentioned before that, um, uh, scalability and, um, yeah, I want to dig deeper into that because in general technology is used many times as an ingredient to make a company scalable in the future. And there is a lot of focus, at least in the business world, to make things scalable. Um, why should we make things scalable uh, to start with and where is the limit? So to start with, one, uh, one quite big factor in why everyone wanted to make the company scalable is because... Uh, at least how I see it, the company is scalable once they can grow uh, without be, that being tied to the amount of employees they have. So if they can grow to have 10 times the amount of customers and revenue, uh, but only have 10% more employees, that's being scalable. Um, and just based on the nature of how technology companies work, that always ties into development because it's the software and it's automation of processes that ha makes the scalability actually uh, feasible. Um, but whenever you talk about scalability within technology specifically, then you're actually talking about, um, well, at least talking about it in a very different way because then you're not talking about how big can we scale the business. Then we're talking about how much load can uh, can can we handle for this specific service and uh, the code that we've written in this manner? Uh, how like how many times could you multiply the amount of traffic that gets before you have to spend a lot of more money on more servers? Yeah, that's true. So there's those two aspects. I'd say the the primary reason that people wanna or companies need to and want to scale is Profits. If you can do something better and quicker, smarter, you most probably be able to earn more by more money, mm -hmm. uh, which is a massive driver for every company. That's just a fact. That companies are out there to to earn money, and then the way they use the money is based on you know the the, the company's vision or what the what the whole value set is and whatever. Um, so that's one reason why you want to scale is because you want your company to grow or at least have a bigger impact. Uh, an example will be 
we are an agency. We recruit people for for scale up and startups, and this has never been a dream of ours to be an agency. Our dream is to be this online tool that helps uh, companies find passionate people who will thrive in their company. But to get there, we have to know a lot of, about the recruitment process. We have to know a lot about people and whatever. So right now we are getting our hands dirty and we're slowly finding out how to work ourselves out of this job because this is not what you know motivates us. We, we are motivated about making an impact. And by scaling our business, we will be able to make a bigger impact uh, and hopefully help more people and have a bigger impact. Um, so that's the business side of it, why, why businesses want to use technology to scale. Well, talking about this first aspect that you mentioned, Simon, should we actually, should companies do that? Or like, what is your opinion on this whole scalability? Because... Uh, reducing costs mean obviously not employing so many people or even firing people so in the longer term I see a lot of negative impact coming with that of you know we have kind of machines doing a lot of work and we get just a lot of money um, yeah mm-hmm. shall we do that uh, yeah. I think um, there's definitely some benefit in just scaling companies up higher depending on the company like Stefan is saying it's good if you have a, a a nice company that wants to make some type of impact on the world, and if they have money, then you, they can do more for the world. At least that's the idea. But I think a lot of companies, once they start to reach that scale-up phase and they see more money coming in, they start to maybe change priorities a little bit. Yeah, you can see that, at least in tech companies, because uh, there was this huge boom in tech where... Um, you know, if you go back to the 1990s, there was no tech companies in the biggest 10 companies, but now there's only tech companies. And when that's not just the top 10 anymore, that's the top 50 or like maybe not so much. But um, And their priorities maybe started out being really good, but once they reached the stage of seeing, oh, we're just growing really ex- exponentially, we're getting a lot more money, and then I think the priorities of a company maybe changes a little bit and that can be harmful in some way I also think this priorities of a company because you say the priorities of a company change but then a company is people so people in this company change priorities mm-hmm. so in this context how much as a developer should you have a say uh, for instance there was this like there's this huge discussion of Google and Facebook and this whole GDPR and people you know trying to be more aware that they're in a way not so good companies or they use the data for some other sketchy <laughs> reasons. Um, so uh, as a developer, should you involve in the company that you work in when you see that things are not going the right, positive, impactful way uh, and say, hey, let's stop or something? Or Because like this whole scalable growth mindset, it seems like there is no end to it. Let's just grow until whatever. But yeah. So yeah, some. So you're saying sometimes uh, the goal of scaling is is blinding on some of the other important things. Like, the goal of scaling is to scale more. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but, is, but that is true, and that's also um, the reason that these tech companies have become so big, because they can scale like infinite. Yeah, um, and 
one of the primary reasons that they change focus is that they get a VC funded. So when they go out and they look for money, you can get an angel investor who is passionate about your project. You can even get a couple of angel investors who will back you up in any situation you have and not have your back in, in any way. But as soon as you go for a series A, a, a series A, B or C, and you start you start adding uh, venture funds, they their business is based on they have to earn 100x on like 20% of their investments for them to actually be able to earn money. So if you if you add, if you allow them to come into your business, then you have to scale. That's the whole premise for you to take their money is that you will give them, you will allow them to earn a lot of money on your business and therefore also earning yourself money. So that is permit, that is like a criteria if you take them in. I would say, uh, I don't have anything to back this up, but I have, I have a feeling from books and from forums or whatever that this way of building businesses is, is losing traction um, where and that that just adds to the whole importance of being scalable because if you want if you want a company and you want to keep it very it's value you have to be able to do it without VCs or without without outside money you will have to bootstrap it mm. uh, and if you get if you can bootstrap a business for a certain point and if you add certain scale scalable parameters in form of tech you can go even further uh, and keep your values on board. Yeah, and I feel like what you said before about um, if a developer should be able to say, you know what, I think we're going in the wrong direction and I cannot stand behind what we're doing now. I think they should do that. But I can also see the side of the coin, which is that it can be really difficult to do that. A company uh, is basically just the views of the management, sadly, I don't think there's a lot of companies. A lot of companies say that they have a flat structure and everyone has an equal say in the company. But I think it's difficult to find big companies who actually employ that in a way that is true to that word or to that sentence. Um, and I think if you're a developer that goes up and says, you know, I cannot get behind what we're doing now, that can potentially be a career stopper if you're really unlucky and that you're saying it to the wrong people or, you know, uh, it can put you a little bit in the crossfire, so to say. But I think it's important still to stand behind your own ethics and morals more than it is yeah. to uh, just work to work. Yeah. You know, um, you should do that in any sense of your life. Exactly. Yeah. If you cannot stand behind what it is the company you work for are doing, then you should not work for them, or you should at least try to say, "Can we do this in a different way, or can we steer, mm. you know, steer the ship uh, mm -hmm. in another direction?" Uh, it might not work, uh, but if enough people do it, then mm -hmm. and at some point the company will be forced to change its course. I think I think what also happens when companies scale, especially at the at the point that we're talking at now, is that I don't think that many people are being laid off in that process. They just don't hire as aggressively mm -hmm. uh, in those areas. So you probably always need service people, uh, customer success, and you will probably always need people to take. To help customers, help users uh, with certain things, so there will always be need of that. But you will start scaling in in areas more aggressively than others. Yeah, that's just a point. I don't think. I think if you start scaling, you you can still afford those people, and you'll probably still need those people because you get more users. 
And also, if, if you're actually able to scale without needing to hire anyone new whatsoever in the whole process, then you're scaling like perfectly. Mm. Talking about ethics and values and morals, um, what what are this? What is, is the importance of this in the work of a developer, um, and also in the context of automation? I think it's really important. I think it's really important. Maybe not for a lot of developers. It's not like. There's a lot of developers who don't do code or uh, write any code that requires the thought of a lot of ethics and morals. There's a lot of really basic programming out there that are just not meaningless, but they're not, they don't have the, uh, such a big impact. But I think there's a lot to think about because the thing with technology and programming is also that you can do things very effectively, but you can also do bad things very effectively with programming. If you, you might program it with good intentions, but be used in a bad way. You know, now we're um, uh, developing a lot of software for uh, tracking people on uh, video streams, for example. So let's say someone is doing a robbery in the middle of the city. They can easily identify the person, figure out who he is. I forgot the company. I think Dell has already made that they can instantly recognize a person and give you his information. But you can also really easily see how something like that can be used in a really negative way if someone is to, uh, you know, get hold of this information or if the views of a country changes later on in the uh, history. Uh, I mean, if we look back at human history, we have seen a lot of times that bad things tend to happen even if people are relatively mm. intellectual. So it's important also to have some ethics and morals and what it is that you're actually developing and will it be used in a good way? Will it be used in a negative way? You know, what can we do to make it prevent it from being used in a negative way, also in the future? I think the ethics and the morals of, of your work is, is like directly tied to your motivation. So I think if you are working at a place where you don't really stand in for what they're doing, I think it's like humans don't want to work there. So I think, there's a good, I think there's a good correlation between those two. Unless, of course, you are being kept in the blind and you don't really know what's going on. Exactly, which can also really easily happen, especially yeah. I think that happens a lot, like I said earlier, with bigger companies. You may not know that what you're making is going to be used in some, you know, may not need, you may not know how it will be used, you just know what you're making. Yeah. Um, for, then, for instance, um, recently there was a discussion I was involved in where basically the question was uh, if uh, one of our customers, they, uh, they say they don't want to be a customer anymore, um, but what if they then a year later was like, oh, we actually want to uh, be a customer again? Um, the issue here it would be that all their data from last time they were a customer would no longer be present because we deleted after 30 days because that's what's in the privacy policy that they sign when they sign up as a customer. Uh, but then someone suggested, well, we can just you know pretend to delete and just store it anyway because then you know it's not going to happen anything. We're not going to do anything with it. But then when they sign back up, when they regret, oh, we still have their data and that's nice for them. But then like, even if that's uh, in theory, very nice thing to do, it's just like, you can't do that because uh, if we want to be GDPR compliant, we just have to do exactly what we state in the privacy policy that they mm -hmm. sign. But I think this is a problem with tech in general, which is that tech is growing really fast and it's growing so fast that uh, you know, the rules and the laws behind it cannot grow with it. You mm -hmm. have things like GDPR, which is a really good uh, try to make some law and some kind of uh, 
you know, scope on what it is that you're allowed to do with people's data. But it just happens so late in the process because tech is growing so fast that a lot of things have already happened that are not mm -hmm. necessarily good things. And that will happen again. You know, tech will find some new cool feature, like some new cool thing. And then it will do a lot of things that are not necessarily good. Uh, and then the law will have to catch up with it. Yeah. But that can be really difficult to do. And you're also forcing a lot of people who don't necessarily have any uh, technical uh, speciality or they don't know a lot about tech to sit down and make a lot of rulings on tech. So as a programmer, for example, you can also feel that some of those laws and rulings that are made about tech are not made by people who are actually knowledgeable about the technology. Especially when you, when you witness some of the recordings from... Uh these uh, trials or not trials but but these situations where there are some very old politicians asking uh, or senators or whatever asking uh, CEOs of, of companies like Google and Facebook uh, the most uh, banal questions that their own eight-year-old granddaughter could answer them mm. uh, which have nothing at all relevant to do with the topic at hand mm. yeah it's it's mind-boggling and that's a, and that's a problem because now you're also asking people who have had nothing to do with technology who are 18 80 year old senators to suddenly understand everything about this whole new thing and also do what we do as programmers which is to keep up to date with all the new technology yeah. And how that works and that is not feasible and it's obviously yeah. not fair to ask either when programmers struggle doing it why should anyone else uh, be expected to do it yeah, and that will only keep picking up and now we have ai coming in mm -hmm. so what will be the rules regarding ai for example are you allowed to just make an ai for anything and just let it go free and do its own thing or are there some scope and limitations to what you're allowed to we will probably only come up with the rules of that after something has gone wrong Talking about AI, how far do you think we are from software writing software? Um, I mean, it's already started, but in the small stuff. Uh, I heard about some algorithm that can do like very, very short code snippets based on some context. And that's obviously not useful for anything other than spectacle right now. Uh, but I mean, it's, it's obviously impossible to make uh, any kind of uh, estimate that isn't just a guess. But just considering how it usually goes with these exponential things, uh, and how fast stuff has been growing in technology the past years, uh, you should probably expect to see some really, really mind-boggling AI within like sh sooner rather than later. I think if you, yeah, I think software writing software, I think you have to look at the problem in it. Uh, now we sit down and we think, okay, how can we solve this with with the technologies that we know today? But that's not how software will solve it. Like um, these game engines and whatever have been experimenting on making human-like figures, adding in muscles that can contract and extend whatever, and then saying, get from here to there. And the, without anything additional, they'll add gravity because that's a, that's a, that's a, that's a thing. Uh, but they won't do anything else but just do it a million times. And it, 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 essentially this... AI will find out, okay, if it moves its arms upside down, you know, it gets there quicker. And then we'll find out, you know, maybe if it does like this, it can get up and stand up. And then by coincidence, by no person telling it how to walk or what to do or how to do whatever, it will just figure out its best way to get from A to B, which if we had to do it today, we will sit down, okay, what do we know? We know that a person has to stand up, okay, 
how do we ride it so it stays up? It has to keep its balance, okay? It has to move one leg, whatever. But that's that's not the way that the uh, the software will solve it. At least not. That's not how I think uh, we will be able to tell software how to solve issues. Mm-hmm. And that's a good point because uh, I think also when the question you ask and the question everyone asks are limited by we think as human beings we have like certain limitations, like mm-hmm. you're saying. If we have to get from point A to B and we have to be really basic about everything, the first thing we will think of is, okay, we have to stand up, we have to put one leg in front of the other, we have to put the other leg in front of the other. But what if the fastest way is actually just to roll down, you know, and not walk? The AI will probably figure that out because that's more efficient. It does not care about, you know, walking. It is just about figuring out the optimal solution to some type of problem. And that can be totally outside what we are used to. Yeah. Whatever code, and I'm doing air quotes here, the potential AI would actually make uh, would not in any way be tangible whatsoever to humans. I think personally, people are a little bit too scared about that whole. Oh no, someone's going to accidentally release like an AI that gets self-aware and like you know suddenly something starts happening that's totally outside of our control. But then again, it's also a thing of we would we should rather be too careful then we should just be like whatever it's probably not going to happen and then if it happens we're going to deal with the consequences you know mm-hmm. uh, because like we were saying the ai is not limited by any human thoughts or anything like that so we are also imposing a lot of limits on it that are not actually there you know mm-hmm. maybe it figures out how to just spread by itself and live its own life online and we cannot stop it you know we don't know if that's going to happen. It might not, but we might as well just be safe. <laughs> it might as well happen as it might as not. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So the, I would say, rather, I think it's a good thing that we are skeptic about this whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, because we don't understand the AI. So when Google, the Google Translate, for example, has its own language, which is its base language, and no one understands its language. It's just developed its own language. Mm-hmm. So whenever you want to translate German to English, it will tr- translate German to the Google Translate language and then translate it from Google Translate language to English. And no one understands what is going on here. Um, and which means you have no control. You can't really restrict it. Uh, likewise, I think someone tried to make a, make a bot, that uh, an AI bot that was the vendor and an AI bot that uh, an AI bot that, that bought stuff and an AI bot that sold stuff and they communicated like how would this go on let's say I had a shop and I wanted my shelves to be filled up automatically with AI how would that work out and they started out by texting whatever I would like to order two packs of this you've got two packs of this whatever and it ended up just saying, sending Morse codes because it was quicker and more efficient. And no one understood what they were communicating about all of a sudden. And it was like, are they still talking about shops? Or, yeah. So it was like, mm. we don't know how to, how to constrain this. Mm. Uh, I can't see how this would harm anyone now. But it's, mm. it's just... I don't know. <laughs> exactly. It's about being more careful, right? Yeah. Like, uh, it also ties into that whole ethics and moral thing we were talking about mm-hmm. earlier that you should probably be careful what it is you're developing, you know. Uh, It's not always just some little tiny program, you know. It can sometimes be pretty impactful and require a little bit more thought and and planning. Uh, Also from a social perspective, you know, how would this impact society when it becomes a thing? Yeah, I I heard, I read, I don't remember, about when they 
when they developed the end-to-end -end encryption, how it was like meant to make sure that uh, governments could communicate with each other securely without any secrets getting out of the military and whatever. But it also enabled pedophiles to just share photos, you know, like make a whole community of pedophiles. But that was what the FBI to... said. The FBI wanted to ban end-to-end -end encryption because they said, we cannot do it yeah. because then people can exactly. share mm -hmm. terrorist thoughts and we cannot intercept it. They can talk and about that, pedophilia. We can that's do a side about effect it. of something that people thought mm -hmm. was, you know, we need privacy. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you go, okay, and this is what happens. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and that's an unfortunate side effect, I guess, of it. Um, mm -hmm. But it is a very real side effect yeah. also that you have to think about. It has some good and it has some bad. Yeah. Talking about good and bad, <laughs> what is impact for you? We um, basically what we do is we help people find a job. So at our office, we we a small office. I think we're about ten people. Whenever we help someone find a job, everyone in the office cheers. It's like this is this is the the main value that we add in our company. Is it's not that we we can send a, an invoice. Is that we actually found someone a job that they are willing to quit and that current job to go to, which for us is a massive achievement. So that alone will be, I feel I have impact if I can, you know, enable this. And my job is is at the moment, at the current moment, to uh, to make tools that allow my colleagues to work more efficient, to um, be more in touch with the candidates or whatever. I feel, I feel like I accomplish things and that I have a, have an impact whenever I can see them using my tools, and then them using them and then actually ending up cheering about someone getting a job. So, so I would say I'm, but that's that's because I'm in a startup and where I am. So I'm very close to the actual value of the, that the company adds. So that I I feel a massive amount of impact. Yeah, I think it's when uh, for me it's when you you. You, you, you add some value to someone or something. It can be a society, a, a person, or you change some perceived notion about uh, how things are. It can be both positive and, uh, and, and negative. And I think it's, impos um, it's important to strive to make a positive impact. You know, Try to change something that's maybe not so good. Like, for example, you say a candidate who has a job that they maybe don't like so much and turn, some, turn it into a positive thing, you know, I think that was, is what you should strive to make, and it's important to also be aware that you can go both ways. You can also have very neg negative impact. You know, they look like, like in the job. Yeah, for example, <laughs> if they had a pretty good job, yeah. but then you offer them a, a job with better pay, so they quit their job to go there, but they find out that this job is really terrible for them. I'm not saying that no, your company no, no. does yeah. to any candidates, but it's a very real thought to have, you know, that you have actually made negative impact not you but <laughs> in general <laughs> you know, I'm trying really hard here to make sure that I'm not talking specifically about that and but, like but, we were talking about before with enter and decryption just to bring it back to that you know I think that it's also almost impossible to create a lot of positive impact without without also causing a little bit of negative impact and then maybe it's about balancing these scales a little bit mm -hmm. you know you can add something that is amazing for society like end-to-end -end encryption that enables online banking, it enables, you know, secure um, uh, voting for countries where, you know, doing voting is maybe not so easily done or is easily manipulated by uh, a corrupt government or something like this. 
yeah, for example, or you give a lot of people a lot of positive impact. You know, there's a lot of positive uh, change in the world because of what you made, but you also have some negative things like you enable people who should not have this freedom to have the freedom. For me, I would just like to, uh, yeah, I mean, I would like to use something that no, I know empowers people in their everyday life. You know, uh, I don't think for me I found a specific thing yet, uh, but something that people can use and after it, they have a feeling like it made their day better, it made their life easier, it gave them some type of value. Um, you know, being able to see, there's nothing nicer than being able to see that smile on someone's yeah. face when they get like really happy about something. Or Like if you place someone in a nice job and they really like, thank you, you see them smile and they like light up with a glow, you know, that's like really, that's really nice. Um, if you see someone feel the joy that you felt when you sold something, Mm-hmm. You know, like when you've seen when you've been sitting battling the whole night trying to make something work, mm-hmm. and you're like you show someone or the person that has to use it is just as happy about it than you are. Mm-hmm. That's a good feeling. Yeah. The way I would define impact, at least in the context of what I try to do in my daily life with my work, is I, of course, apart from the, the just normal principles that I always try to follow, like doing a job well and being respectful and communicate with those that you work with. Uh, like what I, what I see as like minimum requirements. Um, I try to also uh, challenge the mindset that exists wherever it is. So for instance, I'm working now in a company with, with over 500 people. Um, and that means there's a lot of processes and a lot of uh, things in place for that to work, to function. Um, but the side effect of all these processes and structures is that people fall into this kind of rigid routine uh, where they just blindly go with emotions. And I am lucky that I don't have a problem challenging that or asking my boss's boss if that's uh, the right way to do things. Um, so I really try to, to maybe push something that others have thought about but don't really dare to say that we should try or maybe they don't care enough to actually put in the effort mm-hmm. uh, and then even if they laugh at me or make some jokes then I'll still try and push that through until it becomes tangible and real enough that others will start following suit mm-hmm. final question <laughs> um, what is the change that you would like to create in your lifetime that's a tough one that's a really difficult question <laughs> or contribute to not necessarily change them. I really hope that the impact that we are having in our space, the recruitment, I, when we started and I still have this dream, being able to bring work happiness to China will be a massive milestone where it actually becomes a thing. Mm-hmm. Because then you, if you can make it down there, <laughs> you, you can make it, yeah, you can make it anywhere. <laughs> I think I would like to make the world a little bit more good. I don't know how, but like just a little bit more good. Not saying that it's bad now or anything, maybe in some from some perspectives, but just an overall, like make the world a little bit more good. Kind of. Kind of, yeah. Yeah, I think I just want to continue trying to challenge ideas and um, and at least just do whatever I can do to help uh, do what I think is the right thing. Even if it's not the most uh, huge impact or it's only somewhat local to what environment I'm in, uh, as long as I do my absolute best where I am, um, 
that's a good place to start, I think. Cool. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you everyone for listening. This is the Changemaker podcast, a series of interviews with people driven to create a positive impact in their communities and the world. If you like this episode, make sure to reach out. Stay positive, follow your dream and make this world a better place. See you next week.